afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the first in a series of three programs on legal issues and rights concerning transgender, intersex, and gender nonconforming people in New York State. Today, we have a fabulous group of panelists who will address the legal issues facing TGNCI adults in New York. In subsequent programs, panelists will discuss the legal issues facing youth and the future of legal rights and protections for TGNCI people in our state. We hope you will join us for all of these programs. I'm going to start by uh, introducing Chell Miller, the moderator of today's panel. Chell coordinates all aspects of the Government Law Center's publications, events, and community outreach. They also work with other Albany Law School departments, as well as student organizations and groups on many programs and events. Before joining the GLC in 2022, Chell served as the Communications Director for the New York State Coalition Against Sexual Assault, where they coordinated communication strategy, policy advocacy, and training for victim service providers across the state. Chell previously worked in scholarly publishing and as a freelance editor. They are also involved in many community organizations, including the NYCLU Capital Region Chapter, and social justice causes, including survivor justice, racial justice, and disability justice. Shell holds a master's degree and graduate certificate in public history from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And without further ado, I'm going to turn the program over to Shell. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Um, really glad that you're able to make it. And first, thank you to all of our panelists as well for joining us. Um, I'm going to briefly introduce the panelists and they'll have a chance to introduce themselves more in depth later. And then I will kind of give you a kind of backdrop. Um, so we're going to share some common language and history so that, you know, we're really on the same page as we move forward in the conversation. Um, as some housekeeping notes, if you are if you have any questions, please submit those using the Q&A box. Um, the Q&A should be on your, the bottom of your Zoom window. Um, the chat will be disabled for most attendees, just so that you know the host and the panelists and I can um, message with each other. Um, so I'll get started here. Uh, first, the kind of overview of this series, as Judge Stein mentioned, we're doing a series of three programs exploring legal issues facing transgender, gender nonconforming, and intersex people in New York State. Uh, the, today's program will be focusing exclusively on adults, and subsequent programs uh, will focus on legal issues facing youth and their families, as well as um, the final program in December will focus on what's on hori the horizon for advocacy, legislation, or court cases that we're keeping an eye on that can impact the rights and protections and overall livelihood of transgender nonconforming and intersex people. Um, and if you have not registered for those, please do. I have uh, shared the Zoom links in the emails that you've received from us originally. I am sharing my screen so that you can see that schedule more clearly. Um, if you have not registered, please do. We would love to have you. So 
Next, I'm going to set up some common language. So this is an image that was adapted from a flyer created by the Trevor Project. I find this one a little bit easier to read. Um, this is going to be very simplified, um, so please bear with me. And if you have questions, you know, that beyond, go beyond the scope of this program, we can happily share resources for you. So um, your slides aren't showing. They're not slowing. What are there's we? Two, there's two showing at the same time. Okay. Presenter view and thank you. Thank you for that. There we go. That should look better. Yes. <laughs> Thanks all. All right. So um, we, as as far as some common language, it's easy. It's helpful to view gender and identity as you know, things that exist along a spectrum or a continuum, um, you know, so that as you can see in the image, um, you know, biological sex, or you might hear this called sex assigned at birth or gender assigned at birth, which is the language I typically use. Um, it occurs on a spectrum and there's no strict kind of binary um, based on how human humans experience gender. Um, I'm going to start very basic. Um, gender is a set of cultural identities, expressions, and roles, which are often coded as feminine or masculine, that are assigned to people based upon an interpretation of their bodies, right? So assigned gender at birth or assigned sex at birth is based on an interpretation of a, an infant's body, uh, right? Gender is also, as you might have heard, a social construction. It is influenced by the culture and the environment and, you know, socio-political time that you live in. Um, it is also possible to reject or modify the assignment that was made um, and develop something that feels more true or just to yourself. As far as identity goes, um, which I've mentioned so far, that is kind of the internal experience of how we understand ourselves, what we call ourselves, who we connect to and also associate with. We all have a very unique set of social identities based on sexual orientation, gender identity, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, religion, and other important parts of who we are. And identity can change over time and it gives meaning to our lives. Right, so I've covered you know, biological sex or sex assigned at birth at the top here. Um, this again is assigned at birth based on a medical professional or other adult, you know, interpreting what an infant's anatomy means about the gender that they will be as they grow up. Um, this does not necessarily align with someone's gender identity in the future, which is something that they develop and grow through as they move through life. Um, gender identity, the next piece down, is how you feel on the inside about your gender. Um, it could include male, could be female, it can mean transgender or cisgender. Um, there are also genders like gender queer, non-binary, and other terms that you may hear out in the world. Um, gender expression, uh, the next one down, is essentially the multiple ways that you present yourself to others. So. Our behaviors, our dress, makeup, hairstyles are all different ways that we communicate our gender to other people and, you know, inform people about who we want, how we want to be seen. And it's important to underscore that we all 
all of us experience and express our gender in different ways. It is not exclusive to, you know, transgender people. Um, and at the bottom of this image is uh, the spectrum of orientation, which we're not going to spend a long time on um, because that is not the topic of this program, but it is an important facet of everyone's life and your identity or your social excuse me, your sexual orientation and who you're attracted to physically or emotionally is related to your gender identity, right? I'm going to pause there. Um, I made a grave mistake and jumped right into this. I would like to briefly introduce our panelists. Let me see if we've got everyone here. Um, let's see. Okay. One of our panelists is still on her way in, but I will start by introducing everyone and we will move from there. Um, we have here in no particular order, um, Jillian Weiss, an attorney in private practice at the law office of Jillian T. Weiss. Um, she is formerly the executive, was formerly the executive director of the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund. And in, in her kind of self-introduction to me, I learned that she's litigated numerous cases across the country on behalf of clients who've experienced workplace discrimination based on their gender. Um, Kim Dorsey, who will be joining us soon, is a community advocate from New York's capital region, and she's the founder of STYLE, or Self-Turnaround of Your Living Environment, which is a program that helps transgender community members become their own advocates, and she is a board member of Gender Equality New York. Ezra Sukor is staff senior staff attorney, excuse me, at the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund and specifically works on the Transgender Health Project, which I'll let him describe in more detail. Uh, we have Charlie Arrowwood joining us. They are the senior counsel to the Richard C. Fela LGBTQ Commission of the New York Courts, and they previously served as name change project counsel at the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund, and they are also on the board of Gender Equality New York. Um, we have Dina DeFazio here, class of 2018 at Albany Law School. She is an associate at Barclay Damon, where she focuses her practice on regulatory and compliance issues in the healthcare and human services industry. And we'll hear some more from her about this, but she has worked with healthcare agencies on supporting LGBTQIA community members in professional healthcare environments and has worked with employers to develop policies and training to promote LGBTQIA inclusion and belonging in the workplace. Um, and so each of you are going to have an opportunity to introduce yourselves in more depth shortly. Um, the next uh, thing that I'd like to focus on is kind of going through each of these identity terms that I've mentioned. Um, not going to do that super in depth, but just so you know what we mean when we say certain words. Um, one that I'm going to start with is cisgender. Um, this is a word that many people hear, maybe don't understand what it means. Um, it is a term to describe when someone's gender identity or expression, which they grow up they develop as they grow through life, um, that gender identity aligns with what was assigned to them at birth. Um, the Latin prefix cis just means along the same side. Um, transgender, a related term, um, 
trans, the prefix in Latin, means on an opposite side or on a different side. Um, this is an umbrella term used to describe when someone's gender identity or expression is different from what was assigned at birth. Um, I will also talk a little bit about um, binary versus non-binary genders. Um, non-binary is another umbrella term meant to describe someone's gender identity or ex expression um, in a way that acknowledges that maybe their experience does not align with the binary of man or woman. Um, and so that's, a, again, a broad umbrella term. Um, I, for example, do identify as non-binary. Um, you know, those categories of man or woman have not quite aligned with my experience. And so that is, that is a way that I see myself. Um, the word gender non-conforming, um, as in the title of this program, or gender variant is another term you might use. These are also umbrella terms um, describing someone whose gender identity or gender expression doesn't conform to the gender they were assigned at birth. Um, they may or may not identify as transgender, um, and cisgender people can also be gender non-conforming in the sense that their gender expression could um, be something different than what was assigned to them at birth or what was expected of them based on that gender. Um, intersex people um, are another big category we're focusing on. Um, intersex people are born with differences in their chromosomes, genitals, or reproductive anatomy compared to the two more common ways that bodies develop. Right. This is sometimes identified at birth based on how their bodies look. Um, sometimes people find out that they're intersex later in life. Um, sometimes doctors will perform surgeries on intersex babies and children to make their bodies fit binary ideas of male or female. Um, and just like with people who are not intersex, it does not necessarily mean that the gender assigned at birth is the gender that an intersex person will grow up to have. Um, we're including intersex people in this series not to conflate the intersex experience with the transgender experiences, but rather to show that um, we have com there are common experiences in terms of how we how people experience gender how people are received by the world and also the ways that both transgender people and intersex people challenge um, kind of prevailing notions that gender depends on body parts right um, there are uh, a couple more sort of things that i will allude to um, you may hear terms like gender diverse or gender expansive, and that's meant to describe, you know, gender diversity among a group of people, um, acknowledging that people may have different genders, and it's okay not to assume that of a group of people. Right, okay, I think I hear Kim, who's here, welcome. Um, next, I'm going to focus a little bit on kind of history, right? Um, gender diversity is has a very long history in many cultures across the world and across time spans. Um, gender categories were not always tied to anatomy. They're not always binary and they're not always, um, you know, particularly strict. They've been in some cultures very porous or fluid. Um, what you see here is a map that um, PBS and some researchers have created to identify places where in the historical record we've found examples of 
um, gender diversity. In some cases, there are non-binary, what we would call today non-binary genders. Um, in the past, there some of them are called third genders. Um, some examples are um, two-spirit people in various indigenous cultures to Turtle Island or the Americas. Um, another couple of examples are hijras in South Asian cultures and feminelli in Napolitano culture in Southern Italy. Um, I will add a link to this if you're interested in poking around on the map, um, you know, to see what's what. And kind of the next step in the history is um, we're focusing on legal issues, right? And so gender as a thing um, became institutionalized and regulated, particularly after European imperialism, colonialism, and you know the emergence of a capitalist world system. Um, and there are some really interesting resources that I can share later. Um, you know, if you're interested in learning more about kind of the way that gender has been constructed in different cultures and in different times. Um, but specifically in U.S. history, um, we're focusing on New York here. Um, in more recent U.S. history, um, you know, legal regulation has been making headlines. Um, we've seen some, you know, drag or cross-dressing bans that target people who dress in ways that might not align with their gender at birth. Um, we've seen headlines about um, legislation or executive orders limiting public access to, um, you know, various spaces. Um, excuse me, access to public spaces for trans and gender nonconforming people, as well as restrictions on access to gender affirming care for youth and adults. Um, and this way of talking about um, and regulating gender through the law is not new. Um, I wanted to focus particularly on restrictions on cross-dressing or dressing in ways that don't align with your assigned gender at birth, um, partly because that has a really well-documented legal history. Um, for at least 150 years, many states, including New York, have had laws banning cross-dressing practices. Um, for example, New York in 1845 passed an anti-disguise law, which is called um, the New York Anti-Vagrancy Statute in Section 887 in the New York Codes of Criminal Procedure and an anti-masquerade law in 1876, um, both of which were created um, actually to target protesters who were dressing up in costumes to try to not be identified, but ended up being used to target and criminalize um, people who, you know, at the time were considered to be cross-dressing or may have been experimenting with their gender expression. Um, these laws are still on the books. Um, I have here on the screen um, just kind of the intro to an abstract for Kate Redburn's article on this history. Um, throughout the 60s through the 80s, people targeted by these laws began challenging, challenging them in the court system. Um, in 1960s New York, attorneys tried to argue that the anti-vagrancy statute was unconstitutionally vague, um, that it required criminal intent that could actually rule out its application to cross-dressing, but that wasn't necessarily successful in the courts in New York at the time. But lawyers in other states were able to fold in um, the dressing practices of, of people who we may now consider to be transgender or gender nonconforming. Um, 
into a broader trend in the 60s and 70s and 80s of um, unisex styles of dress or androgynous styles of dress that became popular during the time period. And so instead of asking courts to evaluate the deeper meaning of a person's dress and their gender, um, they instead argued that um, these laws actually violated the First and Fourteenth Amendments, um, the freedom to choose one's clothing either as a form of protected expression or as a due process right. And another set of cases involved arguing that trans identity was, uh, quote, an involuntary condition that could not be criminalized under the Eighth Amendment's Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause. And so these cases marked a turning point in you know, trans and gender non-conforming non people being legible in the legal system um, and in the court system. And, you know, the beginning of a cohesive transgender legal movement. Um, and so many of the new laws and the court cases we've seen challenging those laws kind of mirror that history or have a lot of parallels. Um, so I wanted to be able to, you know, provide with everybody with this backdrop and, you know, some shared language and some history as we move forward in the conversation. And so with that, I will stop sharing my screen. Um, I see Kim has joined us. Thank you. Um, all right. So I moved a little quicker than I thought, which is fabulous. So at this time, I'm going to ask each of the panelists to, you know, briefly introduce themselves a little bit more in depth than than I had so far. Um, so I'm going to start with Kim, if you would. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Kim Dorsey, and I am an advocate for our community um, within Albany and upstate New York. I apologize for being late, but I was earlier giving a panel discussion to nurses and doctors coming out of the OGBE, OGBNY community and education. And then I had to rush home to get to you guys. But I want to thank you for inviting me and I look forward to the conversation. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, can I pass it on to Jillian? Sure. <clears throat> uh, okay. Um, well, uh, let's see. My background is um, I transitioned uh, from male to female in 1998, and I lost uh, friends and family and my career. And, um, you know, I knew that was going to happen, so I was prepared for it, even though it was awful. Um, I've been working on this issue since uh, 2001 in a legal context. Um, and um, since I was no longer able to work as an attorney, I went back to school and got a PhD in law and society from Northeastern University. Uh, and my topic uh, and my dissertation was on transgender human resources policies in the US. Uh, that was written in 2003. Uh, there were 35 such policies in the nation. Now there are like thousands and thousands. Um, and the, the purpose of the dissertation was to ask to interview people who are human resources, you know, managers to ask them, why do you have these policies? Because it wasn't legally required. They didn't even know what transgender was mostly. Uh, 
and somehow, you know, they had these policies. So it was really interesting to interview all these people about what they thought the purpose of their policy was. Also, most of these organizations had no trans employees. Um, I also co-litigated the first uh, trans employment rights cases with the uh, U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and the U.S. Department of Justice. And I wrote a case book for law students on uh, gender identity and the law with Professor David Cruz, which came out uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I, you know, I just want to say, like, I know we went through common terms. You know, I have some disagreement with those common terms, so I won't, I won't, uh, you know, punish you with my explanation of that now. But you know, I'm happy to talk about that later. Um, and you know, I remember. Um, after I transitioned and kind of my life completely exploded into a black hole, I was thinking to myself, you know, I mean, I could like be a singer now, or maybe even I could be a lawyer doing these kinds of, of cases. And I thought, no, that's never going to happen. Like I thought being a singer was more realistic than being a lawyer who was, um, you know, working on these issues. Uh, and you know, I, I guess um, in terms of introduction, I have to say I, you know, I really enjoy my work. I have to say sometimes it's very depressing, and sometimes it's wonderful. Um, but you know, the process of litigation is—I don't know—it's thrilling. I mean, every case that I have is like a movie, um, and I would like to be played by Julianne Moore, uh, but that's another story. Um, and I just feel really privileged to be able to work with my clients who are super courageous because litigation is not easy. Uh, it is emotionally difficult. It is a roller coaster up and down. And it's not necessarily the best way to deal with these problems. But sometimes, unfortunately, because people are very stubborn in their prejudices, uh, it can be the only way. So I'm happy to join the panel today. Thank you, Jillian. On the terms, I did say it was going to be simplified, and I'm happy to talk with you later, too. Um, thank you. Okay, um, fine. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Ezra, would you please introduce yourself? Oh, my goodness. I have two very hard acts to follow, and I guess the the like genuine place to start is I'm, I'm up in my fields with gratitude, Kim, for you and Jill. Um, because I think, you know, organizations like Till Death and being able to be an openly trans attorney and have a relatively smooth career transition or transition in the legal profession is really thanks to the groundwork that y'all have laid. Um, and I think that looks a lot like advocacy, you know, in and outside the courtroom to to do a bit of education about what it means to be trans and um, the amazing ways that we show up for our community and ourselves. Um, so thank you so much to all my co-panelists for the tremendous work you've done on this front. Um, and thanks to everyone for showing up to spend a bit of time with us together this afternoon. So uh, my name is Ezra Sukor. I lead Teldef's Trans Health Project. We are focused on eliminating ex insurance exclusions and denials of transgender related care. Uh, I'll unpack a little bit more what that means as we as we um, go forward in the panel. But, you know, I think it's important to start with our end goal, right, which is everybody trans or cis wherever you live, no matter how you get your insurance, whether you get it through Medicaid or a spouse's employment or through your school or through your own employment, 
we have this basic human need to be able to make health decisions with our doctors um, and make them based on what's best for our health and not um, make them based on stigma or what some legislator or politician is saying we should be able to access. Uh, and that's, you know, unfortunately not the reality for trans folks um, right now when it comes to trans-related healthcare. And so we're working to change that by focusing on eliminating in exclusions in public and private health insurance. Right, thank you so much. Um, Dina, would you please introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. Um, thanks so much for having me. And um, thank you to everyone on this panel for being here and for all the great work you do. Um, I am an associate at Barclay Damon in Albany. And um, I, th I think I'm kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of experience and practice, uh, as opposed to many of my co-panelists, because I work largely with providers rather than individual people. So I focus my practice on the healthcare and human services industry. My clients are largely behavioral health, developmental disability, mental health, and substance use providers. Um, the vast majority of my work is based on counseling on regulatory and compliance matters like confidentiality requirements, um, program and service specific requirements, health care issues, developing policies and procedures, um, those kinds of things. I also, as part of my practice, um, train healthcare providers and other professionals on supporting the LGBTQ plus community in professional healthcare settings. So I've trained um, practitioners, administrators, staff, boards, uh, asso provider associations, hospital systems, lots of different kinds of healthcare providers. Um, I also work with employers on employment related matters, specifically surrounding you know, preparing and implementing transition policies and plans to support trans employees. Um, and as part of that, I often do training for management and staff and other administrators. Uh, I'm the co-chair of the State Bar Association's Committee on DEI. Um, I do pro bono work uh, around, you know, legal name changes and sex designation changes. And before I went to law school, I was a social worker and I provided clinical counseling and supervised visitation to parents with children in foster care. And my, you know, my experience as a social worker, I think really impacts and influences what I do now, even though I'm maybe on the other side of the aisle with mainly working with providers. Right. Thank you, Dina. Um, Charlie, would you please choose yourself too? Sure. Um, Charlie Arrowwood, I use they, them pronouns. I am currently senior counsel at the Richard C. Fela Commission for the New York State Courts, which is the court system's LGBTQ commission. Um, and kind of my most of my career, um, I have been involved in this work. There was a brief stint at the beginning where I tried to do like normal law stuff and it just was not gonna happen. Um, so I, I happened to uh, change my name 
because I needed to practice as Charlie, it was becoming a problem. I couldn't get a job, all that. So changed my name through the court system. I was like, this system does not like this, this pr process is silly and it doesn't make sense. And so I, through my own name change was like, I kind of want to deal with like all these little random things. And I happened to meet, uh, the executive director of a nonprofit, Gender Equality New York, that I'm on the board with Kim uh, for. And I said, I'm a trans attorney. I have no job because I left a bad situation with nothing lined up. I want to get more involved in this work. Like, just tell me what to do. I don't, I'll review contracts for you, whatever. So she actually introduced me to Noah Lewis, who also is former Tildev. Um, and we, uh, did Transcend Legal together, and that was primarily health insurance and name change work. Uh, I was the name change person. And from there, I that was um, a nonprofit, and I did direct service and policy work. And then from there, I did the same thing at TILDEF, kind of, but I wasn't doing the direct service. I was uh, kind of providing technical assistance to our pro bono partners. Um, and then after TILDEF, I am now, uh, I was in private practice. And then now I am in the court system doing kind of the same thing uh, that whole time, just with different kind of flavors. Um, so now I am on the inside and um, my, my work is a little more general uh, about equity, access to justice, um, diversity in the profession and on the bench. Um, but uh, the, the name change stuff still looms large because that is a big reason why trans people and LGBTQ people um, interface with the court system. So uh, there's a lot of name change stuff that happens still. And I also do a lot of work with law students because um, we need to figure out a way to provide institutional support to trans law students so that they are not getting burnt out before they even enter the profession. There needs to be a way for law students to uh, find mentorship and connect with folks who have done it before, who are doing it now. And so that is part of my role that I really uh, love right now and I'm very into it. Wonderful. Thank you. Jillian, I see you've unmuted. Did you have something to add? Or am I just paying too much attention? Uh, that was an accident. Sorry. Okay. No problem. No problem at all. Um, thank you all. I am in awe of everything each of you has achieved and, you know, are working on to at, at various levels of these systems, right? whether it's, you know, community advocacy and community support, there's policy advocacy here. There are people advocating through litigation, people who are advocating through employers and work workplaces um, and healthcare settings and, you know, in the court system as well too. So what I'm hoping is that this conversation will show you know, law students and attorneys, as well as other service providers and community advocates in the audience, you know, the various tools that um, each of you are able to use to promote, you know, the legal, civil, the civil rights, um, safety and well-being of trans and gender nonconforming and intersex people. So thank you all very much. Um, before we move on into the rest of the conversation, I do need to share um, a code word for those who are on here looking for continuing legal education credits. Um, that code word is unsurprisingly diversity. Okay, our CLE code word number one is diversity. 
um, those of you who have who are seeking CLE credit, you should have received your materials over email. Um, please search your email looking for my name to find that. And again, that first code word is diversity. Okay. So moving, moving on to our next bit. Um, so each of you have talked about sort of the major issues that you focused on, major issues you've experienced, as well as some of the strategies you use. Um, I'm hoping that right now we can talk maybe a little bit more about, you know, in your experience supporting um, people who are transgender, gender nonconforming, or intersex, um, or representing people in litigation, or um, working with other systems. You know, what are some of the can you share a little bit more about some of the more common issues and challenges that people you've worked with have encountered? Um, you know, anything that you haven't shared so far? And this is open to everyone. I, I think the, the general thing that we run into is that systems are not set up to like assume we exist. So every, you know, everything turns into a wall that you run into. You know, you're just trying to like, engage with the world and you can't complete a, a form online because there's an asterisk and there's no option for you to pick something that actually is accurate. And you're attesting on the bottom of the thing that you're telling the truth under penalty of perjury, but there is no option. Something like that. Uh, just like basic stuff that gets complicated. Um, I'm as I was just going to talk about access to healthcare, and I'm sure Dina will as well. Um, the employment stuff. I, Identity documents, I will get real in the weeds with later, uh, but basically like that is yeah. how you say who you are to the world and it is compelled speech if there's no mechanism for you to update that and you are required to use it. Uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah. If I could piggyback on that a little bit for the, for, for where I stand in this journey, I try to educate and empower my community to be able to self-advocate for themselves, to go in. And when you don't see yourself on that form, be willing to stand in your own truth. And even if you have to draw a line and put your put your truth there, you know, it, it starts the engagement of the conversation. It makes the facilitation uh, organization that you're visiting see you. So you can't just walk in and assume everyone's on speed and everyone's up to date, but I encourage all to self-advocate for yourself, speak up for yourself as well. Yeah, thank you. Does anybody have anything to add? Yeah, just, uh, oh, sorry, Jillian, go ahead. Um, I was just gonna say, uh, you know, I'm working in the area of employment discrimination and, you know, um, when clients come to me, uh, Oftentimes they cry when I interview them for the first time because often I'm the first person who's listened to them uh, and who understands their story and is sympathetic to them. Um, you know, litigation and employment discrimination affects their career, their finances, their mental health. I mean, they come to me, they have no money. And a lot of them don't understand the idea of contingency fees. So they're like, how am I going to pay for a lawyer? I, you know, I've, I'm trying to like figure out where my rent money's coming from. Um, and their self-esteem is destroyed. You know, oftentimes they've been people who've been working in an area for quite a while and been considered very good, but you know, if they transition or if they, 
had, uh, you know, have a, an identity that, um, you know, others didn't, weren't aware of, and that is somehow revealed, you know, all of a sudden they just, you know, can't do anything right. And, you know, uh, people are saying all kinds of weird things to them. Um, and, and that really hurts their career prospects. I mean, litigation takes a long time. Um, people are going to know that this lawsuit is out there. You can just look it up. A lot of employers don't want to hire someone who sued their employer. Um, and, and defendants, you know, are very unsympathetic because they view this as um, an accusation that they are uh, bigoted, prejudiced people. Um, I mean, my feeling is we're all bigoted, prejudiced people who grew up in that kind of society. Um, but, you know, you have to take the money from their cold, dead hands, so to speak. Like, they really don't want to pay this money because they don't think they did anything wrong. And they think that your client's a grifter. And they think that, you know, it's not worth whatever it is that you're demanding because it's not them that it's happening to. And so these are some of the issues that my clients are facing. Thank you. Thanks. Um, Charlie, I think you were going to add something. I'm going to let Ez go first. Okay. Yeah. Look, in the healthcare space, the unfortunate reality is that trans folks um, trying to use health coverage, so health insurance, like Medicare, Medicaid, employer-provided insurance to pay for their health care, still too often encounter really blatant sex discrimination. So, you know, we're litigating a case in Tennessee right now um, involving the state employee health plan. And right there in the language of the plan, it says we won't pay, pay for your care if it's a so-called sex transformation. And that exclusion is applied to bar coverage for trans-related care. Um, so that's that's the bad news. Uh, I think the good news is for folks who are in New York, there are a lot of tools to address that scenario. And there are a lot of things that we can do as lawyers to help people facing a denial overcome that and eventually be able to get their care covered or money to pay for their care. Um, so, so that's good news. And so I think, you know, one thing I want to bring to this conversation is there's so many ways that you can help break down this barrier. It can look like representing employees. It can look like helping people do Medicaid or uh, Medicare fair hearings. It can look like if you represent employers, encouraging them to just like have a trans inclusive plan to start out with. So you don't have to meet Jillian, um, or at least you don't have to meet Jillian on, or me on the other side of on the other side of the V. Um, or it can look like helping uh, doctors and institutions right, comply and, and deliver really good, holistic, gender-affirming care uh, to their patients. Um, so, so, you know, that is the barrier we see, really blatantly discriminatory exclusions. Um, and unfortunately, also, you know, TILDEF's focus right now is, is on addressing uh, barriers to coverage. But we see, and, and data backs up also, that People, people still do face provider discrimination for being trans, even, even things like being turned away when seeking care from a hospital in an urgent situation. Uh, and that should be happening to exactly no one anywhere in the country. And if it happens in New York, there, there are legal tools to address that. Thank you. I think in addition to being turned away for care, just some in some places, there just are not providers who can deal with you in a respectful way if you're trans like they just don't have the the knowledge the background and you can teach them but it's that like what kim was saying like you have to self-advocate in 
almost every situation. So like, I, one thing I love about the work I do, like I, I signed up to be the squeaky wheel. I signed up to advocate and make it so that like the person who comes after me does not have to deal with the same conversation 500 times. Um, and so I think there are a lot more trans people getting into the legal profession and into advocacy so that we're like at the tables ourselves, making our own tables. We're, we're just like, there are conversations happening now that I could not even have imagined like even five years ago. Um, we're, we're just like taking the reins and doing what we know needs to be done as trans people. Um, and I think that that's allowing us to do a lot of education that needs to be done both within our community and within the people, you know, like in the general world um, where we're working with, you know, medical providers, judges, uh, businesses, like we're we're getting in everywhere and and making sure that um you know we're talking to a lot of people at once so that we're trying to make things you know better on a, a a wider scale so that people are not having individual you know i don't know where that sentence was going <laughs> i mean from my perspective the you know, two things I would just add is um, one, I I think there's a general, you know, just lack of awareness and preparedness in both providers and employers. So a lot of times I get involved because something has happened, right? That needs to be resolved. It's it's all it feels very reactionary to me, like. Um, an employee comes to their employer and says they're trans and they're going to transition and management panics because they don't know what to do. Um, and, you know, these are all things that I think we need to be looking at and thinking about and working on and being prepared for and ready for long before they happen. Um, if an employer hasn't had an, um, an employee transfer, an example, yet they certainly will. Um, and, you know, we need to be ready and prepared and know what steps we're going to take and what things need to be considered and um you know those sorts of things and in terms of healthcare and and human services i there's just a huge lack of access to services in general so a lack of healthcare services that are affirming for people um you know we're facing a staffing crisis which makes those healthcare services that were available even less available now and you've you know folks are seeing like extremely long wait times to get into providers even more broad than that a uh, lack of affirming mental health services and a lack of affirming substance use treatment services i think that's a huge gap um in in our community and you know by way of example i'll just say that I work a lot with providers who are regulated by state agencies and substance use providers are regulated by the New York State Office of Addiction Services and Supports or OASIS. And OASIS has a endorsement program. Um, it's an LGBTQ affirming program endorsement that OASIS certified programs can get. And what's really interesting about that is that I cannot find a list of programs and providers who have that endorsement anywhere on the OASIS website. 
And if it is available somewhere, that means it's not accessible because I've looked before, I've emailed Oasis and haven't received a response. Um, I looked for about 35 minutes before this call just to make sure I didn't say something that was inaccurate. And I cannot find this list anywhere. I have heard through the grapevine that it exists and you can get it from Oasis directly. I've not been successful in doing that. And if the purpose of endorsements and things like this for programs and services that are, are certified or licensed by state agency is to make sure these programs are visible and increase access to them, um, we're doing a really bad job if you can't even figure out who has the endorsement or who has some kind of you know credentialed affirming care program or, or access or something of that, that nature. And if you can't find it, it's not helpful. Right. Um, you know, whether those kinds of endorsements and the requirements providers have to meet to get them uh, is really a valid system, or if those, the things you have to meet to get the endorsement is, are sufficient is really like a whole nother conversation, but I also have doubts about that in some respects as well. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Yes, Ezra, go ahead. Thank you for sharing that, Dina. That's really important. Um, and, you know, it, thinking back to an earlier phase in my career, I, um, when I was at, at the city's anti-discrimination enforcement agency, that, you know, that was an issue that that we saw pretty squarely was access to, to inpatient substance abuse treatment um, and folks not, not being able to um, participate in programs particularly inpatient ones um, because the program would say something like, well, we're only going to accept uh, women who are trans if we have a single room or we're not going to accept women who are trans at all. And, you know, if you're told that um, for for the folks in the audience who don't have the lived experience of being trans, um, just imagine being told when you're in crisis, you have to pretend to be a gender that you're not in order to uh, get care. And that's just like not bearable on the day to day um, when we're our best selves. And it's really not bearable when you're at a point where you might need inpatient substance abuse treatment. So, you know, some trans folks persist and, and get through that gauntlet, but but it's really too much to ask of anyone. Um, and, you know, I think it's also an example of how there really are layered barriers to access to both trans specific and general health care for trans folks, right? If you're having to go around to find an accepting and affirming provider, and then you might run into insurance barriers. And like Charlie gave a hot tip to, there might not be an adequate network for the type of care you use. So then there might be a waiting list. And if you have to appeal an insurance denial or address discrimination, and then you lose your place on the waiting list for surgery, that can become a whole thing. Um, so, you know, the 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 picture can be challenging and there's so much space for lawyers to step in and advocate. Thank you all very much for, you know, getting us started with really these really very pressing issues that are, you know, based in real life experiences. You know, one of the things in you know, for law students, especially who are here, is being able to hear real life experiences, you know, not just kind of the academic perspective of law. Um, thank you all. Um, one of the things that came up 
you know, from kind of a few of you is learning to advocate for oneself. Um, so I wanted to kind of start with that too, because that seems to be the key to getting access to any resources um, or even becoming connected with a lawyer. But um, so Kim, uh, through your program style, um, the, one of the ways I've seen it described is, you know, helping transgender community members learn to be their own self-advocates. Um, I wonder if you could share a little bit more about that. Exactly. What I do is, um, first we start off with changing the narrative and the language around it. You know, you could go to a provider and say, I feel like a woman. And that kind of falls to deaf ears, as opposed to I am a woman. When asking for care around your needs, it's not I want to be, or I um, I want cosmetic surgery. I need this. You know, it's just changing those little words from a want to a need, so it doesn't come across as cosmetic surgery to your insurance people. I remember when I like Charlie said earlier, I put myself in a situation to where I had to force the state to house me. So then when we go around looking for a place that had trans housing, you know, and I'm talking in a shelter situation, there was only one um, place, one room. I'm like, okay, that's just one me, but what about the two other girls I passed on my way here? You know, what about where they're going to stay? So then I went back to the um, state and I'm talking like GSS and any kind of facility that would help you get into housing and demanded that they put me into a hotel or put me into some kind of a motel setting, you know, for my safety purposes. I don't want to go into a shelter where, as you said, I have to pretend to be someone else or I'm so isolated where I'm only in this one room in this shelter. And so that's not really helpful to me as well because I feel that now you're kind of uh, expelling me from the whole world because of my experience and my trans journey. So I teach the people to, again, go in and speak your needs, not your wants, not your, you know, your desire to be feminine, but your need to show up as your authentic self. So that's one of the things we teach in stylists to start self-identifying yourself for yourself because there might come times where you will have to educate someone. You might have to take a side step through your journey and go around in another way. Even with my friends who are in substance abuse, I say to them, okay, if substance abuse is your main factor, well, work on your substance abuse. You know who you are, but let's get all of the other things out of the way of people seeing you who you are. You know, just don't show up I'm a woman or a man of trans experience and I demand you give me services. Go to the services and get the needs that you need and then build off of that. And like I said, don't be afraid to educate someone. I hope that helps. Absolutely, thank you so much. Um, and I, I think this is ties into sort of the next kind of question I had for you, Kim. Um, you were also very active in getting New York's Gender Expression Non-Discrimination Act passed. And and I think, you know, there there was a lot of education that had to happen, you know, in order to, you know, talk to lawmakers and and also, you know, just community advocates in general. Um, could you share a little bit about, you know, why that was needed and and 
what it changed for for people, at least in, in your community or as far as you've seen? Well, it's the backbone to which the journey starts. If you walk out your house and feel you have no protection, then you're not coming out of your house. You're going to isolate yourself. You know, and when I met Julie, who's our ED through gender equality, that was the one thing we kept saying, you know, we have to at least get the state to recognize law protection before we can even start having this conversation because there was no real law protection in reference to the trans, non-binary, non-questioning community. I mean, there was L, G, and B, you know, but um, again, that was only based on their marriage equality and the need to have marriage equality. It wasn't speaking to the individual, the person, you know, so, but we, we felt, okay, if you're going to listen to that, then we're going to walk in through that door. And then once we get in, we're like, ha but we had this other agenda for you. And then that's when we started talking about the need to have the discrimination act put in place. You know, um, through my journey, I went out to California at first because I thought it was the Mecca. I really did. I thought LA was right on board and knew how to represent us and protect us. But I got out there and found out they weren't. But I, what made me come back to New York State because New York State was becoming progressively aware of our community and was allowing space for our community. So I figured, okay, I'll come back and we'll start here. And I'm so happy for Jenny being played. Um, part of it and gender being passed because it gives my community at least a pass to walk in those doors, to go to those organizations because now you have it. Even in your workplace, when you know gender is there, you can go educate your employer on it. You know, even if they might not be aware of it, you can go in and say, you know, there is a law to protect me in this situation. And so I, again, I always encourage people to be an advocate and train and teach. I know it's headachy and I know it's stressful, but I'll repeat it 2,000 times until you understand it. I am here and I need my, I need my protection. I need my lawyer's protection. I need my health care protection because I'm a human first. Thank you. Um, yeah, gender or the Gender Ex Expression Non-Discrimination Act is one of those important tools that, you know, has emerged. Um, it When it was passed, it amended human, the Human Rights Law, um, New York Executive Law Article 15, uh, that is in the program materials, and that covers, you know, discrimination in employment, public accommodations, including some healthcare facilities, housing, education, and credit, and it also amended the general civil rights law to provide a blanket prohibition on infringement on civil rights, um, as well as harassment or violence based on gender identity and expression. Um, yeah, is there anyone who wants to talk a little bit about that before we move forward? Um, just that about 20 years ago, um, mm -hmm. New York passed the Sexual Orientation Non-Discrimination Act, SONDA. And at that time, um, LGB advocates said, we'll get to the trans bit. Let's just get this done first because this is what we can get done right now. 20 years later, this, the gender identity part was added. So that whole 20 years, everyone, next year, next year, next year. And it took 20 years for this almost. Um, so now we have 
we have that. We have other, you know, our name change law has other specific protections. Um, there are a lot of insurance regulations that are uh, very helpful. Um, so we're we're kind of, and that part of that, like I was saying, comes from us being in the work and and saying, these are the problems that I'm running into in my everyday life, trying to get the care that I need, trying to get the legal services I need, trying to get a job, trying to get housing, whatever. And then we're going into the systems and trying to sort that out. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, and one of the other things we talked about at the very beginning earlier was, you know, identity documentation, right? Charlie, um, you mentioned that you can go into a whole thing about it, and I hope that you will. Um, and Dina, too, based on your experience doing this as well, um, I have some kind of some questions. Um, feel free to kind of evolve that out, out of that. Um, can you describe sort of the importance and also maybe some of the complications of of things like legal name and gender and sex designation markers on identity documents and you know you've alluded to kind of why it's meaningful uh, but can you share a little bit more about that yeah so in addition to it just being how you present yourself to the world it has practical implications if your ID does not match who you look like or who you tell people you are. Um, you know, if you get pulled over and your ID doesn't match, um, that can escalate a situation very quickly, particularly if you are a person of color or there is some other marginalized identity that comes into play. Um, the other issue is that some documents are used to generate other documents. So if you can't get your birth certificate changed because you're from a state that requires genital surgery. So you need to sterilize yourself to get a new birth certificate. Um, and that's just not something you feel like you need. You can't get health insurance coverage for it. Your family will disown you. You'll lose your job if you have to take leave. Whatever the reason may be, there are lots of reasons why your genitals should have nothing to do with your driver's license or your birth certificate. And so we get into a, a situation where people have no mechanism to have an accurate identity document. And that means that as they enter into new systems with those incorrect documents, they're just perpetuating more incorrect documents. They're using the wrong name to get a new driver's license when they move. They're you know, applying to college with the wrong identity documents. Um, and so the, the sooner you can kind of nip that, um, the, the easier it is to change everything over and just kind of start your life and do what you have to do. That's especially true with young people. If I get, I, when I was in private practice, people used to ask me all the time, parents, like how young is too young? Or when do I know how to change, you know, when to change a name? And I'm like, listen, if your kid is sold on a name, the earlier you do this, the easier it's going to be for them. Because if you do it before they have a driver's license, if you do it before they have applied for college or taken the SAT, any, you know, they're not setting up accounts as children as much. Um, so, you know, the earlier you can do that, the more straightforward it is to change everything over and the less there is out there in the world with their old information on it. Um, gender markers, uh, some of the issues that come up with that is in some states, so there are like a few different buckets when it comes to changing gender markers on documents. Um, some states require a court order ordering the administrative agency to change the document or at least recognizing the gender of the person. Um, and that can be that you have to, in order to get that, show the court that you've had surgery or maybe it's just a letter from a doctor saying, I treat this person, they're trans. That 
standard kind of depends, but you need to walk out with the order in, in order to get the sex designation changed on a certain state's birth certificate. It's like Utah, Texas, Indiana, all the states you would expect to be more difficult and more expensive and cumbersome are usually the ones. Uh, and then um, some states just want a doctor's letter, whether it says that you've had genital surgery or some other sort of surgery. Sometimes, uh, particularly young people, can have surgical implants um, for blockers. And so the, the endocrinologist who does that calls that surgery, and that is sufficient sometimes. Um, if in, in other states, it's just self-attestation. So New York, um, we passed the Gender Recognition Act in 2020. 2021? I don't even remember. Uh, it went into effect December 2021. And it overhauled the name change process and uh, ID document change process in New York. It made everything that is New York issued self-attestation. Um, so you just check off the box if you want to change the gender marker on your documents. Um, if it's a New York issued document, um, it made it possible for people who were born in places that require that court order, if they live here now, made it possible for them to get that court order from a New York court, which was pretty much impossible before, unless you happened to find a judge and had an attorney who could like argue it the right way. It was a mess. Um, and so judges were saying, we don't have jurisdiction to order the Texas Department of Health to update a birth certificate. And we're like, that's not what we're asking you to do. Texas just wants a court to say, this person is a woman. And then they'll change the birth certificate. And so it, it was like conveying that to lawmakers to be like, and, and judges even, to be like, we're not asking you to do something unconstitutional. We're asking you to word this in a way that will make it so that these people can get what they want to move on with their life. Um, so, at this point, I believe um, about half of the states are doing self-attestation, about half have ex-gender markers. Um, so that's for folks who are not comfortable or don't want an M or an F on their documents. There's now a third option for administrative purposes so that you don't have to lie on a form or you, know, you don't have to lie when you uh, hold out your ID. Um, and there are a lot of interesting implications of the X, you know, what happens if you need to interface with a system that doesn't recognize an X? What if you move from a state that has an X to one that does not? If you have a passport with an X on it and you go somewhere that that's not safe, what do you do? Um, how do you prepare for that? Um, you know, what happens if your ID documents don't match? There's uh, a friend of mine published a piece called There's No Such Thing as a Legal Name. New York is a common law name change state. You can use whatever name you go by. You, you want people to call you something specific, they can call you whatever you want. It's difficult to get your ID documents updated without a court order in most circumstances. Like post 9-11, that was when it really kind of shifted. You used to be able to like go in and be like, everyone calls me this and they would change your social security card. They don't do that anymore. Um, they, they want the court order. So... Um, I just lost my train of thought again. Uh, um, well, the last thing was, you know, some of the complications with the X gender marker um, and how how you're able to change it or interact. With oh, so yeah. So states. if you um, if you get a court order 
and you change your driver's license, but it's $110 to change your passport and you can't pay that. Um, they pretty much don't grant waivers for that. So now you're in a situation, you have to travel internationally in an emergency and your driver's license says one thing, your passport says another thing. Um, having to reconcile that, the, the passport in that circumstance would trump the uh, the driver's license if you're going through immigration or whatever. But like, if if there is any sort of situation where those documents are compared, um, it's going to kick something back. If like if you have TSA pre-check and your driver's license says uh, your current legal name and you haven't updated your TSA pre-check yet, you can't use pre-check. So you have to go through the body scanner and then the body scanner beeps because you have boobs or whatever it is. Um, although I did just hear from a contact at the ACLU that they have finally now removed the uh, pink and blue buttons from the body scanners at the airport. So they're not just guessing what's in your, uh, what's under your clothing anymore. Um, yeah, so the, the thing with the common law name, you can have documents that say all sorts of different things. I have four different birth certificates, my birth name with an F, my uh, birth, uh, my new name with an F, my new name with an M, and my new name with an X. Um, so, and, and no one has ever like yelled at me before. I've used older ones when I couldn't find the newer ones. Like, um, so just being aware of, where those hiccups can happen um, and making sure that you're changing the things in the order that makes sense for how you're going to use them and prioritizing uh, the, the things that will actually kind of have an impact. So like things that don't really, you know, you're not using, uh, you're not using a birth certificate every day necessarily, but you might want to have one in case you do need to use it. Um, a driver's license you are using every day potentially. So that might be something that you want to update a little sooner. Um, yeah, and just it it really it impacts every facet of your life what your what your documents say. Um, it impacts the way you carry yourself, how you present yourself to the world. Um, and you know, in a situation like with health insurance in New York, we have very strong protections against um, like sex denials for spe sex specific care. So if I go to a gynecologist and I need a pap smear and my insurance says M on it, I might get an automatic denial at first because the computer just says, you know, this is a man, why are they getting a pap smear? But if I call them and I say, I have the parts that need this, uh, this care, they are supposed to fix that and it's not supposed to happen again. And so these are the things where like, like I, I changed my name and I wasn't going to change my gender marker with my health insurance. And they automatically did it when they changed my name. And that impacted denials that I was getting. And that's the kind of thing, like, I didn't want an M. I am not a man. Uh, and they made that choice for me. And it it uh, had an effect on how I had to deal with stuff. So um, just make sure, like, you're you're doing things in an order that makes sense for you doesn't matter what order you change stuff in. If you're helping someone change their stuff, it doesn't matter uh, unless you're told that it does, in which case you do what works in that specific situation. Every person is going to be different. Their their legal transition is going to look different. 
and it's going to happen at a different time than maybe their medical or social transition. Um, but everyone's just got to do what works for them. And uh, that's it. Yeah, thank you. That was very in-depth. Thank you. Um, I do have a question actually from an audience member before we move forward that is related to this, um, someone who works with law students. Um, you know, what are what are some things that law students who um, may not have transitioned yet or, you know, transitioned using a name or they find later that they do want to change their name? Um, you know, what are ways to smooth that process, especially because the bar admission process is pretty intense when it comes to birth records and your registered legal name? Yeah, this is actually something that I came into this position wanting to work on. Um, so it's something I plan on tackling in the near future. Every department that admits attorneys has a rule that says you have to either practice as the the your your legal name, whatever that means, um, like the name on your documents, basically, or some sort of like derivative of that name. So if your name is Robert, you can practice as Bob, but Carly can't practice as Charlie. So I needed a court order to change my name on the attorney rolls. Um, and that was the only reason I changed my name in the court. Um, but we're, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if you have, if the court has a record on the back end um, that this person is, belongs to this bar number and belongs to this birth certificate or driver's license or whatever, as long as there are ways for clients and and uh, people in the public to file a complaint against you because really that's what they're concerned about uh, and for judges to track who is submitting things um, you know that's something that we can uh, that we can deal with on the back end that does not have to be the trans attorney's problem if we want to increase the the diversity of the profession we need to like make it possible for people not to have to out themselves every time they sign a paper or do an appearance or whatever um, so the bottom line is, at this point, there is no formal rule that allows for you to practice with your chosen name if it's not derivative of your legal name. But I have seen um, law firms, law schools, they've done like asterisks. So, you know, if someone signs with their chosen name with an asterisk and then at the bottom with a footnote says admitted as whatever, you know, as long it's, it's the same with like, if you have clients who uh, have a different name, if you set the record straight and you establish on the record that this is this person, it's difficult to see why there would be a problem unless there was like fraud happening. Great. Thank you. Thanks for that. Um, so some of the things, right, that have come up that um, are, you know, issues with access to healthcare and, you know, insurance, especially, um, and some of that can stem from, right, as you, Charlie described, you know, incongruent names on documentation. Um, thinking, I'll start with Ezra and then Dina too, if we can transition to talking about healthcare access. Um, you know, what, We've talked about some of the barriers, right, to access to care, but what are some of the primary things that, you know, the Trans Health Project is seeing um, in terms of litigation or, or other sorts of issues that you're working on? Yeah, so we are um, 
most of our advocacy at this point is outside New York. So I, I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, if it's okay, I'm just going to open with a little bit of tools that folks can use to advocate for New Yorkers. And some of those tools also apply nationwide, right? There, there are layers of protections that folks can be able to, that folks can use to address discrimination and health coverage. So um, many people get healthcare through employment. If, if someone works for an employer with 15 or more workers, um, that employer is going to be covered by Title VII. Jill can correct me if there are nuances I'm missing, but but as a sort of as a general proposition, uh, Title VII forbids sex discrimination. Um, you know, from the very beginning of Title VII, some of the um, most important uses of that law have been to address discrimination and benefits. So excluding coverage for pregnancy from an employee health plan, for example, or excluding coverage for trans care from an employee health plan. So that's a tool that's available to folks who get um, get insurance or health coverage through employment. And, and TILDEF uses that tool around the country to uh, address trans-specific exclusions in health plans. So just this week, or maybe it was last week, what is time anymore? Actually, it was last week. Uh, my, my colleagues um, announced the settlement of a lawsuit in Georgia um, against the state employee health plan there. Uh, we we brought Title VII claims and constitutional claims um, against the state and some state agencies. And the good news is they came to the table. My colleagues were able to negotiate a settlement that not only removed an exclusion that targeted trans folks and said, we won't cover the the healthcare you need to transition because you're trans, but also put in a good affirmative coverage language. So, um, you know, going into open enrollment this year, state employees in that plan should be able to to select uh, plans that will include coverage that is in line with WPATH standards of care. Um, so, Title Seven applies in New York, applies around the country. Also, uh, Section fifteen fifty seven of the Affordable Care Act. Um, covers health programs or activities that receive federal financial assistance that includes health insurance um, and it forbids discrimination based on sex and disability. That means it's not okay to, to deny someone coverage for the health care that they need because they need it because they're trans or to treat gender dysphoria. Um, so that's another federal layer of protection that can be useful to folks in New York who, for example, have health care that they've bought on a marketplace or um, or one way or another in, in a health plan that's getting some federal financial assistance. Um, then, you know, as, as y'all talked about earlier, we have a state human rights law that covers uh, public accommodations and employers and forbids sex discrimination. Also for folks downstate, the city human rights law. And then um, the other really good news thing for, for folks who have health insurance that's issued in New York is that the State Department of Financial Services, um, which oversees insurance, has put out regulations. So a lot of states, including New York, have a part of the insurance law that says you can't discriminate based on sex. Um, you know, I think that's really all we need to get coverage for trans folks. And in New York, we have regulations saying, hey, sex includes discrimination against someone for being trans. Um, and so we have those regulations and also guidance from Department of Financial Service 
financial services. So what that means is, is in theory, um, you know, health insurance plans that the New York insurance regulators regulate shouldn't be getting out there to folks if they're trans-specific exclusions. And if someone gets a denial, so like Kim, like you said, if someone goes to get health care and puts it through their insurance and a denial comes back and says, you know, well, we're not gonna, we're not gonna cover your facial surgery or your um your top surgery, because we see this as cosmetic because you're trans, then there's recourse um, through the insurance appeal process. Folks can often challenge those denials first directly to the insurance company and then in many cases um to the department of financial services and if you take a look at their website because uh, i hope that everybody will be thinking you know we'll leave this thinking how can i help trans folks get their health care covered if you take a look at the dfs website you'll see um there's actually a pretty pretty good rate of folks who go and appeal to the Department of Financial Services around trans care, getting their care covered. It's a time intensive process. It engenders a lot of delay. Um, and I don't think anyone should have to go through it, but folks should know that there's a possibility to get their health care covered at the end. Um, so, so those are some tools available in New York. Um, you know, none of these laws and tools are self-executing. So there's a huge role for lawyers to help clients. And if you are working with someone on this type of case, there, there are you know, resources um, certainly that you can uh, get from the packet in this, the CLE. And you can also reach out to practitioners um, like the folks at TELEF or, or other organizations that, that do trans health work. Um, and then I guess quickly touching on our litigation. Um, so in addition to the Rich case, which just settled, we have uh, cases involving state employee health plans in other states in the South, so Tennessee, North Carolina with our partners at Lambda Legal, um, also another case in Georgia against the county. Uh, those those litigations are ongoing, but, but we had summary judgment wins in, in North Carolina and Georgia. Um, so that's exciting. Uh, and another, I guess, another update I would touch on um, is federal employees. Uh, health coverage for federal employees has been, you know, the subject of, of a lot of advocacy over uh, probably over 10 years by now. Um, and there was a good development earlier this year, which is the uh, agency, OPM, the agency that regulates health coverage for federal employees, put out another carrier letter to insurance companies that participate in the program um, and said, hey, if you know, you can't exclude uh, gender affirming coverage. Um, and then they gave some really key examples that unfortunately we were still seeing happen in federal employee health coverage. So you can't exclude um, gender affirming facial surgeries. You can't exclude um, I think another example given was breast augmentation. Anyway, it was really important guidance from the feds to participating carriers. Um, and the other thing that it said is that they expect that the carriers will have coverage in line with uh, up-to-date standards of care. And so 
you know, going forward, that gives folks who are advocating for federal employees another tool to point to to address denials should they occur. Um, and in the best case, it'll lead to the, the carriers falling in line and folks just being able to get their care covered. Awesome. Thank you. Um, one note, we have a very uh, excellent attendee who actually found that list of treatment programs that are designated as LGBT with the LGBTQ enrollment designation. Um, so I will make sure to share that. Thank you, um, Kelly, for this, um, which is exciting because now we have awesome. a resource, right? Um, what is not terribly surprising is there are only nine programs in the state that have that designation. Um, you know, so that that may be a you know future opportunity for you know attorneys and healthcare providers. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> yes, I looked pretty hard. Yes, I I imagine yes. Um, are we sure it's up to date? God. That's a good yeah. question too. That's probably why they took it down or made it like not easily accessible. Mm -hmm. If someone, they don't have an intern to update it right now. Right. <laughs> to call every, are you still trans affirming? Yeah. And, you know, we do have some of these resources in the capital region, for example, of, you know, the Rainbow Access Initiative and, and a number of other community groups have created directories of, you know, healthcare providers who are either broadly LGBT friendly or specifically trans friendly. Um, and, and a lot of that has come from, you know, the LGBTQ communities or trans communities who've realized that, you know, those resources are not available and made them. Um, so, yeah. Um, Dina, do you have, um, so on your end of the work with healthcare providers, um, you've mentioned that a lot of the work you might do with them is sort of after something has happened. Um, are there, are there, you know, what are the major, I guess, compliance and regulatory matters that you work with healthcare providers on? Um, and are there ways that you've been able to work with them to institute, um, strategies that prevent, you know, barriers to access for trans and gender nonconforming people? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the work that I do with providers is training and, you know, writing policies and procedures, which you hope that folks implement in the way that you uh, counsel or recommend, but, you know, you can't really, I don't know what people are doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, in terms of training, you'd be surprised at how basic a lot of it is, and people just don't have a level of awareness. Um, maybe the other panelists wouldn't be surprised by that, but, you know, I think some people might be. Um, you know, in those trainings, I typically talk about language and the applicable non-discrimination laws and guidance and policies and those kinds of things. And um, I, I talk about general best practices, which I, like, think of as just how to be a good human. Right, so because I can't, I can't comment on um, medical decision making or, you know, affirming services in that respect because, you know, obviously I'm not a doctor. Um, but I can talk about things like how do you document information in a medical record that 
is affirming to a person while also you know collecting the information you might need as a provider to make sure that you're making good choices as a as a provider for someone's care or um how do we how can you ask for more information about something without being offensive or you know making someone uncomfortable or being a jerk right <laughs> like there's ways to like shift your language queue up a question you know those kinds of things um how do you talk about or or warn someone that it if their insurance card is in one name and you know they use a different name normally or in their everyday life like how do you tell someone that what name is going to be on what documents and explaining to them why it is your that decision has to be made um typically for some kind of legal reason or you know what's registered with their provider payer um you know so training and education i think is super important to prevent things like that from prevent discrimination from occurring because if we're not aware of what we need to be doing then that's how bad things happen i guess or you know that's how people end up in um, discriminatory situations in terms of assisting providers with policies and procedures there's a variety of state agencies that have requirements for certified programs and providers they have to have policies and procedures in place about affirming care or about gender identity and expression and you know I mentioned before Oasis in addition to that endorsement that Oasis has Oasis also has just a general requirement that applies to all Oasis certified providers that they have to have LGBTQ affirming policies and procedures. Um, they have to place people in gendered segregated settings based on their gender identity or gender expression. Um, there's rules about the supervised collection of toxicology screenings and who can um, supervise those kinds of screenings. Um, they have to have LGBTQ liaison who works in, in their program or on their staff. And, you know, I can say that in my experience, many providers don't even know these requirements exist um let alone are have policies and procedures and are making sure that they're implementing them there's new requirements that came recently from the new york state office for people with developmental disabilities for programs that are licensed certified funded or otherwise approved by opwdd so those are programs for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities um once again, you see policy and procedure requirements, training requirements for staff, those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, I just don't know where providers are at in acknowledging that this is a requirement and that they need to have these things in place. I suspect it's going to be a lot similar to things I've run into with OASIS providers where they don't really know that they have to have these. Um, and you know, there's a reason why they're required. So, and also it's just the right thing to do. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, in my past life working in, in sexual assault victim services um, at a coalition, one of the things that we did do was kind of go to do site visits with um, victim assistance programs across the state and really kind of do like an informal audit. And, and one of the things that we did ask each of the providers about is, you know, what is your level, your staff's level of awareness of, um, you know, issues affecting LGBT people in your community or specifically trans people in their community, you know, are they coming in the door? Um, you know, are you actually seeing um, trans people in your, trying to access your services? And if not, why? Um, because the reality is, you know, trans people and gender nonconforming people and intersex people are everywhere, right? Whether you know it or not, everyone, you're going to have a client or a patient who might be. Um, and, and one of the things that we did do was as a result of, you know, some of those audits, we did start doing very specific training on, um, you know, trans inclusive care and gender affirming care for victim service providers. Um, because often in that industry, because of the dynamics of gender-based violence, um, most victims are, but you know thought to be women and it is not exclusively you know a cisgender women's issue um so that was kind of one of the tools that we had had at that point too and the the reality that there are state agencies now in new york state issuing these regulations and policies for the programs that they fund that is relatively new um so there is it seems to be a big communication barrier between the the agency that issues the regulation and you know people at the executive level and then people who are service providers um so that isn't you know an opportunity for future training too um so thank you we can go for so much so long on every single topic um i'd like to transition over to talking about employment issues which have been referred to here um and Jillian, I'd like to start with you as someone who has litigated numerous cases involving workplace discrimination. Um, you know, what what tools do you and your peers um, who are representing employee, people who have been discriminated against in the workplace um, use? And, and what are the results, right? Are they, have they been effective? What have you seen? You are muted. We're not able to hear you. Thank you. Um, the number one tool I would say is uh, money, <laughs> because there's nothing more educational than saying, "Pay us two hundred and fifty thousand dollars." People sit up and take notice when you do that, and they begin to realize that they cannot continue the behavior, which they didn't think was wrong in the first place. But you know they. They can't continue that way. They have to put things in place. Um, also, I go to federal court rather than state courts. Um, I find that the federal courts are much less crowded. Uh, you know, the states are handling the bulk of litigation in this country. I mean, millions of cases every year. The federal court, you know, we're, we're talking, uh, you know, in the hundreds of thousands, uh, how many cases they're handling. Um, and, and that way I can go to court in many different places in the US because I know the federal rules. And usually all I need is someone to say, uh, to vouch me in and sign a piece of paper saying, yeah, they're okay, please let them 
do this case in Oklahoma or wherever. Um, <clears throat> I found that uh, you required to uh, file a charge with the um, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission on the federal level before you can go to court. And I have found that that um, for a solo attorney such as myself is a waste of time. Um, when I originally started doing these cases, I was a professor. So I could uh, take the time, you know, and it was, I, I was just figuring out how to do this. And so I was happy that the EOC was helping me. But if I have a client who really needs like a resolution of this, that could sit in the EOC for a year or two until they say, well, there's nothing we can do. Or they say, yes, you're right. But then the defendant refuses to settle for anything reasonable. Um, so you can ask the EEOC to just issue you a notice of right to sue. Um, in some EEOC offices, it's a little controversial because um, technically they're supposed to be conciliating. But, you know, it it hasn't worked out that way in practice. Um, and if they realize that they're not going to be able to get to it within the time frame uh, set out by Title VII, they'll often say, okay, fine, go to court. Um, but state claims are also important. Um, you know, if Title VII has caps, uh, you can't get more than, I mean, the top is 300000 for non-economic damages. So that's everything non-economic, emotional distress, you know, reputational injuries, um, whatever it may be, anything non-monetary. Um, so, but state claims often don't have that limitation. Although state claims in New York State, there's no vicarious liability. So that's a kind of a negative. Uh, because you have to prove that individuals are aiding and abetting <clears throat> rather than saying uh, the company is liable because an employee did this. You have to show that the company actually was negligent. And of course, if you're in New York City, that is the best case of all because they have really great, very protective laws. Um, another tool is the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, that has come into play. Um, and, you know, there's some controversy in the community about it, but my feeling is any port in a storm and my job is to represent my client and do well for them. So I'm not so much worried about the theoretical uh, difficulties with the ADA. Plus, I feel that there's nothing wrong with disability. So I don't have a problem using that and state disability laws as well. Of course, if you have a public employee, you can bring constitutional claims, uh, due process, Although substantive due process after the Dobbs decision uh, may or may not be alive, I'm not really sure, it's on life support, um, but equal protection claims, certainly, uh, First Amendment claims. And, you know, I, I put a number of my cases in the materials. So, for example, the Monaghan case, which is listed in there, um, that involved a, a public employee, government employee who'd been working in government employment for their whole career. And she transitioned and, you know, although everybody said, oh, yes, we're very supportive. Her boss just like was had a problem with it, could not figure it out and made a list of things she could wear and not wear. And I got a ruling from the Eastern District of Virginia saying that's a violation of the First Amendment. You know, you have a right to express yourself through your clothing. Um, and. Um, Kozak uh, is another case that I uh, put into the materials that involved a uh, railroad worker. It's still going on, but it involved a railroad worker 
Sorry, my voice is getting a little scratchy. So <clears throat> the railroad workers work in these huge, huge yards, and there may not always be a bathroom available. And it's a very male-dominated environment. So people went behind the shack, you know, <laughs> if they couldn't get to a bathroom. They, they're dealing with 200-ton trains, and they've got to, you know, uh, turn around 200 of them in a day or else they didn't meet their quota. And uh, that happened to be caught on the many, many cameras that they have to watch the workers and make sure they're doing the right things. And someone who had a problem with transgender issues and admitted that in depositions, um, you know, fired her because uh, this was public lewdness. Well, it wasn't really. Um, but I did make a claim under the Americans with Disabilities Act because she was taking a medication for her transition that is a diuretic. It's called spironolactone. And it makes you go to the bathroom more frequently. And she had told them that this would happen. She didn't say, you know, this is an ADA accommodation I need, but you don't really have to say that. So when you read that case, you know, the railroad company thought they were going to get out on summary judgment for sure, <clears throat> because the employer has a lot of leeway. But the judge, um, Judge Scretany in the Western District of New York said, Nope, there's enough here to move forward. And he specifically said that the ADA will cover gender identity discrimination. Unfortunately, he also said that I didn't bring enough evidence as to what medication she was taking and its effects. Okay, but I still had my Title VII claims and all the state claims, so it worked out fine. Um, but these, these are the kinds of ways that you have to think about these cases. And if you read the facts in the cases I listed, they're incredibly interesting. Like um, the Milo case involved a cybersecurity expert <coughs> who was really an expert and worked for an agency that I'm not allowed to name. I could tell you, but probably not allowed to. Um, and, uh, you know, she had transitioned on the job, I believe, or they found out that she was trans. And one particular worker who didn't work for her employer was giving her a hard time because there were a number of different people from different agencies, companies working together in this facility. And uh, the, the um, District of Maryland, the judge said, you know, there's not enough here to show a hostile work environment because you didn't name specific dates on which people said things. Well, it happened over years, and it was a few years ago now. So she doesn't remember dates. So he dismissed it. I repled and mentioned dates. You know, I sat down with my client. I was like, okay, you have to figure out what you think the dates are. I know you don't remember, but let's let's look at your calendar or your diary, whatever. And then, you know, the case uh, uh, went through, and it was eventually settled. Um, and the Tudor case involved a professor who transitioned prior to tenure. And they said uh, faculty was like, yes, you're great. You should get tenure. Uh, the the uh, Senate, faculty Senate <clears throat> said you're great. One vice president said something like, this offends my religion. And, you know, she got bounced out. Um, well, after, I guess, 10 years of uh, working on this case, um, she was reinstated, was actually is a very 
rare occurrence, particularly in academia. So, you know, these are the types of things that come up uh, over and over again. And I think it's important to be creative and look beyond Title VII and beyond uh, gender and beyond the city laws to really think creatively about what other things could apply. So that's some of the tools. Fabulous. Thank you very much. Um, and as a reminder to everyone, your program materials um, were sent by email. So if you have not received them, please email me. My email address is in the chat. Um, CLE forms for those of you who are attorneys looking for continuing legal education credit. Those have been sent by email. Again, if you don't have those, please email me. The uh, Here's another a message for the attorneys in the room. Um, the second CLE code word, um, thank you attendee who just asked the question. The second CLE code word is empower. Um, that word is spelled E-M-P-O-W-E-R. Again, that CLE code word, hope you're paying attention, is empower. All right, thank you. So we're starting to near the end of time, but I do want to ask you know, just a couple more questions. Um, Charlie, um, in the materials that you shared, you shared some things that you you or the um, FELA LGBTQ Commission have created. Um, you know, what are, what are some of the things that, you know, the courts are working on to improve, you know, access for trans and gender nonconforming uh, people in New York? Yeah, so um, the FALA Commission, like I said, started in 2016, and that was when um, the court system kind of started really specifically focusing on LGBTQ access and uh, equity um, as, as its own thing. Um, but there have been updates to forms, updates to procedures, um, Dress codes have been neutralized. There's bathroom signage saying that you have the right to use whichever bathroom accords with your gender identity. Um, there's been an ethics opinion saying that judges must use gender neutral pronouns if that's requested of them. Um, the rules of professional conduct for attorneys and judges uh, include not uh, a prohibition on discrimination based on gender identity and expression. Um, what else? Um, there were issues that came up um, in the name change process specifically prior to the, the law change and also after. Um, before the law changed, uh, like for example, Nassau County required you to send your name change, regardless of where you were born, required you to send your name change to the Department of Homeland Security for them to open up a file on you, wait 30 days, and then file your name change with them and then notify Homeland Security again once your name change was granted. Notify the Board of Elections, even if you are not a citizen or not registered to vote. Uh, and they were requiring immigration documents that not everybody was qualified for. Um, and so when I was working with NOAA at Transcend Legal, we wrote them a, a memo, the clerk's office, and we were like, hey, like none of this makes sense and it's having practical implications for people and we met with them and they were like oh yeah you're right this doesn't make sense and they just adopted everything 
Um, so, so much of the trouble that we run into is people not realizing that it's a problem. So if you are practicing in the courts and you realize there's a problem somewhere, please find out who to, to contact in the court, whether it's an LGBTQ thing or some other thing, like, even if you want to reach out to me, like, and I can find you the right person, but like, there are people on the other side and they want to fix the problems. And frankly, as a former advocate and still advocate, but I, I used to be on the, the other side of this equation and I was maybe uh, unwarrantedly really surprised when I got into bureaucracy and I was like, wow, there are people who are really passionate about solving these problems and making it work. And so I'm, I'm really excited to now be a part of that, but I, I love when people come to me with stuff and I can be like, okay, this is how we need to fix it. This is who we need to talk to. And then like, just get those dominoes in a row. Um, the, the creation of my position, even like Matt, my executive director was on his own with the commissioners for like eight years, five, like six years. Um, and now they made my position so that we could have a person managing the commission, but also a person managing the policy advocacy and like the, the development and all that. Um, so just like having someone who is a point person, an ombudsman, a triage nurse, whatever it is, um, you know, we, a lot of the, the information we get is from practitioners who are like, I was just in Manhattan civil court and they told me I need to submit X, Y, Z. They told me they're not going to send this up to the judge unless I give them this, whatever it is. And we are able to kind of talk to the court and be like, what's going on here? How do we get past this? Um, and, and that has real on the ground impact, um, to just like have a person you know, uh, like if you've ever had to call social security or deal with some agency and you can never just access a person to be like, this is, you know, the, the, the voice prompts are not giving me the thing I need. <laughs> like, this is a way for it to insert a person and be like, how do we actually solve this problem practically? Um, and the, the name change stuff, even though we're a unified court system, that is, you know, there's a unique procedure and unique requirements in every county. And so any information, you know, we're, we're a 62 county system. Um, so any information from any county you're practicing in could be useful uh, if there are specific problems in specific counties. And it could also be a sign of a bigger problem. We're running into issues with like um, e-filing. So with the new name change law, they got rid of the publication requirements. So you don't have to publish your old name, new name, date of birth, place of birth, uh, and address in the newspaper anymore. And it's easier to seal the record, but um, we now e-file in New York. So there is an electronic record that exists from the time the person files or the attorney files to the time the order is sealed and companies are grabbing that and putting it on the internet. So we're working now on a solution for that. Um, and we didn't realize that was a problem until everyone started e-filing and the law went into effect and we were like, oh, this is a hiccup that's happening. So watching the the stuff kind of play out and, and troubleshooting is a big way that the problems are getting solved. I uh, hate to add more to your list, but I read an interesting article recently about how name changes are and that uh, gender marker changes are being essentially decided by clerks under the new process, not really courts. And um, 
I thought that was interesting. And I also have, have seen myself and, and heard a lot about certain counties in New York where the judges will not seal records. Um, I would love to do like a county survey. I don't know if you have access to that information, but I think that- Can you email me? We'll talk. I have people to connect you with. That'd be great. Thanks. But yeah, the New York City clerk thing is, it's on our list. It's an open conversation. Sure. We're figuring out how to educate and shift discretion. Yeah, it's interesting because I've done probably five name changes this year and I've never had an appearance, which is good, right? Like just going to decide. There shouldn't be anymore but, unless yeah. there are weird things. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Um, one one final question that I will ask because I don't see any more questions in the Q and A. Um, this is going to be a combination of one question I had and something that an audience member submitted beforehand. Um, sort of, we've talked about some of the gaps, right? That both the tools that that the legal community uses and community advocates are using. Um, we've also talked about a little bit about the gaps and. You know, Jillian mentioned, you know, that you need to be really creative in some ways to um, to see results. Um, you know, how would you suggest, you know, younger advocacy organizations, um, young lawyers, um, or even people working in government, you know, um, like start addressing some of the gaps that have been left behind? You know, what is I guess, what is possible? What are people imagining? And I know that's a big question. Um, I do feel like we're a little bit done asking uh, for incrementalism because <laughs> we're not getting what we need. Yeah, I guess to reframe the question is what are what are people asking for at this stage? big change, right? Um, Beyond just the change, just the acknowledgement that we are here and we exist and that we need the care, we need the representation that is not just a fad that is passed on in a moment glimpse. This is something that's been around since the beginning of time. And either we have to catch up or we're going to be left behind on this because it is crucially needed for the community at large. Um, I just wanted to mention that a lot of my clients have trouble finding lawyers, and I think that we need to give more training to lawyers about these kinds of cases because they are very different. Um, I've decided to focus on only on these because there's so much to know that if you don't know it, you just don't know that you don't know it. Um, and also, a lot of lawyers don't want to handle them because they're not really sure what it is. They don't really get it. So, um, you know, education of lawyers is really, really important. Building on what both Jill and Kim have said, um, you know, I want a world where trans folks don't have to worry about law and regulations um, in order to get healthcare covered. And, uh, you know, comprehensively, right? The, the care we need to transition, the, the care we need to stay healthy. Um, and I think a really encouraging trend is that 
more and more people, trans and cis, are, are you know, taking the spirit of what you're saying, Kim, and just saying, yeah, we deserve this. We're here. Our needs are real. We've been around. You know, providers are supporting us. Um, cis folks are supporting us. And so we have a lot of work to do. And I think the legal profession has a huge role to play in terms of helping people deal with discrimination when it does occur. Um, and it's so exciting to see trans folks knowing our worth, knowing that that we deserve comprehensive health care and going out there and getting it. I think, you know, one thing people forget about when we think about New York is that New York is not New York City, right? And outside of the city, it is very scary still, I think, in a lot of places. Um, so, you know, advocacy and support in, in areas outside of the city um, is super important. Like I'm, you know, I think many folks on this call are in Albany and, you know, there, we, why don't we have a, a large, you know, queer rights advocacy group in the seat of the state capitol? Like, why are they only in New York City? It doesn't make any sense. Um, so that's, you know, and if there's a gap I see too, it's just additional support and advocacy that's more, wider and, and existing outside of New York City. Yeah, thank you. Um, great. Uh, we have, let's see, does anybody have parting words, you know, before we log off? Advice what for the law students. Oh, please go ahead, Kim. Uh, I was going to say thank you to all that have participated law students and as well. And to just keep in mind that before you look at us as just being a trans experience, look at us as human beings that need the care, that need the information. Even if you don't believe and agree with, start with, well, this is a human being that needs to be represented. And as a lawyer, we come to you hoping that you see us for the care we need and being represented, not so much as for, I need you to, you know, rally behind me, you know, on my own personal level, just rally behind me as a human being who's seeking the protection. And I thank you all. I hope there are a bunch of law students on this call because this is not related to uh, like working with trans people in the law but it's related to being a trans person in the law but also cis, cis law students this is important for you too don't put up with crap if you are not being treated well find something else to do there's a community of people who will find things for you to do please don't put yourself in a situation where you are being disrespected and not listened to and not taken care of you spend a lot of time working it is hard enough to be a, a queer or trans person in this profession. And if it feels bad, it should not be what you're doing. If you are not able to be yourself and go to work every day wearing what you need to wear, you're not being called what you asked to be called, you're being given cases that are not aligned with your values or your personal experience, uh, 
and your supervisor is not respecting your request to not be involved in those cases, that's frankly a reasonable accommodation because that is a mental health issue. It can become one. So just like no going in, you, you should ask for what you need. You do not have to put up with garbage if people are disrespectful to you. Uh, and, and you can expect that you will have allies because you should be in a place where you do. That's it. Thank you. Any, anyone else before we wrap up? Just two quick things. I, I, people are who they say they are, and that's it. Um, your opinion or your thoughts or what you think about how someone acts or looks or their name or anything really does not matter. Um, what someone says is is the right thing. Um, also, when you're working with clients, I would encourage you to focus on the relevant issues. So in healthcare, there's a phenomenon that is very popular on Twitter or X or whatever you call it now um, called trans broken arm syndrome. It's this idea where every type of healthcare a trans person might need is somehow rooted or related to the fact that they're trans, which is very often not the case. So, you know, you could have a client who maybe is trans, but that has really nothing to do with the help they need from you. So don't make something an issue that isn't. We're all just people. Everybody's, everybody is people. We're all people and everybody has needs. So unless you're going to take their needs and empower them more with your knowledge, then carry on. Exactly. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all um, to each of each of the panelists here. Thank you for for sharing you know, your wealth of expertise, um, you know, bringing in lived experiences as well too, um, and, you know, for providing materials, right, and resources that people can look to. Um, you know, what, what I have learned today too is there are so many tools that are accessible in New York State and even even across the US, um, as Jillian had described. Um, so we will, you know, share resources and I invite anyone who's interested in seeking out more resources to email me, my email's in the chat and I can help connect you with, with some more resources. Thank you. And thank you all.